Well, good morning. If you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Have you noticed that every time you go to the doctor, they seem to want to collect the very same information, no matter what is wrong with you. They, they want to know how tall you are. Uh, they want to know how much you weigh. Uh, they want to know your temperature, your blood pressure, and your heart rate. Now, why is it that the doctor uh, wants to know that information every single time? Well, that information gives the doctor a pretty good picture of your general health. Uh, the doctor knows that if your temperature is 103.6, that there's a problem. And if it's the middle of flu season, she knows or he knows that uh, you likely have the flu. Uh, the doctor knows that if your heart rate is 40 or 140, uh, that you have a problem. Uh, the doctor knows that if your blood pressure is 140 over 100, that you have a problem. Those, those vital statistics tell the doctor something about your general health. So what are uh, the spiritual equivalence to that. What are some spiritual vital signs that would tell a person something about his or her general spiritual health? Well, I, I think there are at least four of those things. Uh, it depends on how you divide it up and what scripture passage you were to turn to sort of for your benchmark. But just as there are four official vital signs, I think they are respiratory rate and heart rate and blood pressure and temperature, I think there are four uh, spiritual vital signs that will tell us about our general uh, spiritual well-being. And we find those in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. And so if you don't mind, let's stand and just read together this one very important verse. Colossians 2, 6 says, So then, just as you have received Christ as Lord, now let's stop there for a moment, to receive Christ as Lord, what does that mean? That you are a child of God. That you have trusted what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross as he died to pay the penalty for my sins and your sins, you have surrendered your life to him and he has adopted you into his family. And so it says, just as you have received Christ as Lord, continue to live in him. So Christianity is not just something that we start, it is something that we live. And so just as you have become a believer uh, by putting your trust in Christ. So here's now how you should live. And notice the four things. Being rooted, that means to set down some spiritual roots, and built up in him. So the roots are something that are unseen, but being built up means that there are some visible parts of your life that will demonstrate that you're a follower of Christ. So you're rooted, you're built up, you are established in the faith. That means that you don't waver. That means that you don't give in to temptation every single day, that you are established in your faith, just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. That refers to your attitude. That refers to your spirit, that you live a life that is just overflowing with thankfulness and gratitude 
for who God is and what he has done for you. Please be seated. Did you see those four things? Notice this, uh, this graphic that uh, Jonathan, our media minister, has created. I think this does a, a great job of just, of just showing us what these four vital signs, spiritual vital signs are. That we need to be rooted, that we need to be built up, that we need to be established, and we need to be overflowing. Now in the next three or four weeks, church, we're going to skip all through the Bible. These won't be ordinary sermons where we just drill down into one more narrow passage. But over the next three or four weeks, I want us to measure our spiritual health. And I want us to talk about specifically what we need to be doing in order to be fully devoted followers of Christ. What does it look like to be rooted, built up, established, and overflowing? And we're going to get very specific. So this morning is going to be the introduction. We're going to take a, a, uh, an examination. We're going to have a spiritual physical, a spiritual checkup. And then next week, we're going to talk about specifically what these things look like, these markers in our lives. And then the next two weeks, we're going to talk about how our church then needs to be purposeful. Our church needs to be focused on making sure we're helping the people who are here have these traits in their lives and how we're helping people all over this community have these traits in their lives. And this is going to be an important time in the life of our church because we're going to establish some of these things and they're going to govern, they're going to direct our ministry over the next decade. They'll determine how we spend our money. They'll determine how we staff our church. They'll determine uh, the things that we preach. And so we want to know what does it look like to be a healthy fully devoted disciple of Jesus Christ. And today, uh, I want you to see that we all have uh, room, room to grow. Uh, so as, as we take this physical, let me tell you, it, it won't all be pleasant. How many of you enjoy going to the doctor for an annual exam? Uh, I just turned 50 years old. Uh, some of you who uh, have passed that point before me. Tell me that there are some very unpleasant things in my future. Um, I, uh, physical exams are not always fun. The spiritual counterpart to that is not always fun either. And in fact, this will be a little, this will be hard this morning. This will be difficult this morning, but it's very, very important. So turn with me to Revelation chapter two, the very last book in the Bible the book of Revelation, the Revelation of John, chapter 2. And this is a section of Scripture, chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, where Jesus authors seven letters uh, that are sent to seven churches. And there's much we could study here. We could easily take seven weeks and go through these. And we'll do that perhaps one day if the Lord allows uh, but I want to take all seven letters and I want to pull out three or four diagnostic kinds of questions. I, I want to let Revelation 2 and 3 be our physician today as we undergo this spiritual, physical. And I think there are two or three important diagnostic questions, three or four important diagnostic questions that we find in these two chapters. 
And so the first question is this, are you disengaging? Are you disengaging with the Lord? I think that's the first question the spiritual doctor would ask of us. Are you separating yourself? Are you withdrawing? Are you disengaging from the Lord? So we're in Revelation chapter 2. I want us to read verse 4. Now this is in a specific letter that Jesus is, is sending to the church at Ephesus. And he says some nice things about the church. But he really gets to his point in verse 4. And so we're going to look at that verse today. He says this. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Your Bible might say that you have abandoned your first love. The problem that these people faced is that they used to have a strong, vibrant love for the Lord, but now they have abandoned that. It has subsided. It has, it has waned. Their love for the Lord is not what it used to be. And he tells them that somehow they need to regain that excitement, that passion, that first love for the Lord. Now, this will work differently depending on your age and whether or not you're married, but, but let's just take a stroll down memory lane. I remember uh, two and a half decades ago uh, when I met my wife before she was my wife and uh, I was uh, strongly, strongly attracted to her. She was uh, the most beautiful girl in the county. I was uh, thrilled that somebody had introduced us. We began to date, we began to spend time together and I really, was growing in, our, in my relationship with her, and I finally, it dawned on me that I was in love. And the next day, she moved to California. <laughs> so I think it was about the time that I put her on the airplane that I recognized, you know, absence makes the heart grow fonder, and uh, I recognized that, uh, that I, was, I was in love, I mean, all the way. I was in love, and I couldn't think of any way to get out of it. I, I was, uh, it, had, it, had, it had captured me. So she, she moved to California and was there. She was on assignment with the North American Mission Board, and they had sent her to a resort ministry uh, in California. And so we began to have uh, a relationship over the phone. And so I would call her every day. Now, you just got to know something about me. I'm actually traveling tonight. I have a funeral tomorrow in Ohio, and uh, so we'll be traveling tonight, be out of town tonight. And so Don and I will probably talk <laughs> before we go to bed, but uh, I, I will characterize the, the phone conversation. It'll last six minutes, maybe seven minutes. I just don't like to talk to anybody on the phone. And so I'll say everything I need to say in six or seven minutes, actually in one or two minutes, and then she'll take the other four or five minutes. And <laughs> And, you know, then, then we just go to bed. But that's not what it was like when she moved to California. We talked on the phone for hours every single night. I don't know what we talked about. I guess we finished, so we don't have as much to talk about now. But, uh, <laughs> but we talked for hours. Now, some of you are too old to remember this, but making a long-distance phone call, there was a time when that was a big deal. And I remember the first phone bill I got was over $400. <laughs> I 
And that was when $400 was a whole lot more than it is today. $400, I, um, oh, I don't even know what my salary was back then, but $400, that was hard to swing. Really, really hard to swing. Uh, but I did it again the next month, and I did it again the next month. I was, I was in love, you know, in just such a passionate way. And now that's my story, but you have the same story, right? If you're married, you can remember a time, and, and maybe it's, you know, it's just as strong today. Um, of course, with me, Donna, it is just as strong today <laughs> as it was in those days. But we can go back and we, we can remember that first love. Uh, maybe... Maybe you uh, are not married yet, uh, but maybe you have been in love. I remember the first time I thought I was in love. Uh, I didn't know what I was talking about, but uh, I thought I was in love. And I had a relationship with, uh, uh, with, with a girl for about a year. And, and I, um, I, I just thought that uh, this is exactly what love is. It just took over my life for an entire year. We can remember back, and even if you're not quite old enough to capture all of this, just wait. One day you will know, and you'll have your own stories about your very first love. So that's the kind of excitement that he's talking about here when he says to the church at Ephesus that you're a good church. You're faithful week in and week out. You live a life that reflects a uh, desire to honor God's word. You're, you're ministering, you're witnessing. They were doing all the things that you're supposed to do. But he said of them that you've lost that excitement. You've lost that passion for God. You've lost your first love. So I wonder exactly what that means. I think it's more than just an excitement. I was thinking this week about first love. I think first love is a motivated love. Uh, when when Don and I were first in love, I didn't have to discipline myself to uh, make sure I was spending the right amount of time with her. I didn't have to discipline myself to, to, to buy her gifts or to shower her with, with, with love and kindness. And, 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 and it was just an outcropping of, of our relationship and the passion of that early relationship. It, it was a motivated, a self-motivated relationship. Nobody had to preach a sermon to me when, when those, in those early days of our relationship that I needed to show my wife kindness. It was, it was just a part of the motivation of that love. So I think when he talks about first love, he's talking about a self-motivated love. I think he's also talking about an exclusive love. Because when we have that passionate love, it just seems like everything on the periphery fades away. I mean, there was only one woman for me. There was only one thing I wanted to spend my money on. There was only one person I wanted to spend my time with. I, I, everything else just faded to the background. It was an exclusive kind of love. And it was a liberal love. Uh, liberal meaning that it was unrestricted. Uh, I, I, would, I would spend $400 on telephone calls uh, I wouldn't spend $400 on telephone calls today. I'm mean, too worried about the money today. And, 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 and maybe I was just too cavalier in those days. But, but it was a liberal kind of love. There were no restrictions on the love. So we need to have a love for our Father that's the same love. An excited love, but also one that's self-motivated. A love that is exclusive. A love that is, that is liberal. Uh, so does that describe your love for the Lord this morning? We, uh, a few of us meet early on Sunday mornings. About six o'clock we meet for prayer. 
Uh, if you'd like to join us, we'd love to have you, but we just meet right here. Uh, we kneel in the floor uh, here together before the Lord and we pray. And the thing we pray for is for this service and, and for our 1115 service, that God would work in this service in people's hearts and lives. And one of the things uh, that one of the men prayed this morning, and I don't recall who it was, uh, he said, Lord, today, remind us that this message is not for somebody else. You know what that means? Have you ever heard a message and you've thought all the way through it? Well, I'm glad so-and-so is here. <laughs> uh, or I wish so-and-so were here. Well, what he prayed this morning, and I thought this was such a timely prayer, he said, Lord, help us today to hear the message and think about ourselves. And so I'm asking you, have you lost your first love for the Lord? Have you lost that passion, that liberal, unrestrained love for the Lord? You know, I'm afraid for many of us, we, we come to church regularly, uh, we read our Bibles, we, we, we're, we're stepping through the motions. Uh, we, it's not that we don't love the Lord, but I think if we were just honest, I think on some level, many of us, most of us perhaps would have to say that there was a time in our life when we were more passionate for the Lord than we are today, that we have lost our first love. Let me tell you how, you how you can lose your first love. Do you want to know that? Because this may help you understand if you have. I think there are five ways that you can lose your first love. And maybe one or more of these was true of the Christians at the Church of Ephesus, who were the recipients of this letter in Revelation 2. One way you can lose your first love or leave your first love is by conscious choice. You could simply make a choice that you're going to walk away from God. You're going to quit going to church. You're not going to read your Bible. You're not going to pray. You're not going to live a life that honors the Lord in, in conduct. You're just going to consciously choose to walk away from the Lord. Now, probably not many of you have done that. Uh, when I think about our TV viewers, when I think about uh, those who are watching our streaming broadcast this morning, uh, probably not many of you have consciously chosen to walk away from the Lord. You're here, right? Or you're listening or you're watching this morning. And so you've not consciously chosen to walk away from the Lord. Many people have, but they're not the people who are listening to me today. You've not done this. So why would I even mention this as one of the five options? I mention it because I want you to know that there are four other ways. I, I, I mentioned conscious choice because I want you to know that you can lose your first love even if you haven't made a conscious choice to do that. I think the church at Ephesus, they hadn't lost their first love because they consciously abandoned God. They didn't lose their first love because they consciously decided, I'm not going back to church. I'm not going to read my Bible. So you can lose your first love because you have chosen to do it. But most people who lose their first love, they never made a conscious choice. And so I mentioned this first one just so you'll know that there are four other ways. And you may still have left your first love even if you never made a conscious choice to do that. And so that brings us to the second way to lose your first love. You've made a wrong turn. Sometimes in life, we just make a wrong turn. Now you can make a wrong turn out of ignorance. 
Maybe you didn't know that going down this path would cost you your first love. Maybe you married somebody you shouldn't have married. Maybe uh, you, you uh, began a relationship with somebody you should not have begun a relationship with. Maybe you pursued something you should not have pursued, and you didn't know at the time. Maybe out of ignorance, but you didn't know at the time that that turn in your life was going to cost you your passion for the Lord. Or... Maybe you did know that it was a wrong turn, but you thought it would be a temporary turn. I think Christians do this all the time. We go down a wrong path and we know it's a wrong path, but we think that we're going down this path only for a little while. And we're going to return and we're going to come back to the Lord and everything's going to be fine. People will look at pornography and they'll say, it's just going to be a one time or it's just going to be one day. And they don't recognize that it, it will rob them of their passion for the Lord. And as the old evangelist used to say, you've probably heard this, sin will always take you further than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay and cost you more than you wanted to pay. And so many people have left their first love because they've just taken a wrong turn in life, either out of ignorance or thinking that it would be temporary and it wasn't temporary, and now they have lost their first love because they've made a wrong turn. The third thing is this, maybe it's just distraction. Maybe you were trucking along with the Lord pretty well, but you got distracted by something. It captured your attention, and now instead of being focused on the Lord, you're focused on something else. Now, maybe that thing is a bad thing, a sinful thing, but maybe it's not. See, you can be distracted not just by sinful things, but even by good things. You may just be too busy. And you, you may have gotten so busy in life that the busyness of your life has, has distracted you from, from your passion for the Lord. Maybe it's a hobby. Maybe a hobby that nothing's wrong with the hobby and you could engage in that hobby and still be a godly person, but you've let that hobby become such a passion in your life that it has distracted you from the Lord. Maybe it's some other kind of pursuit. Listen, I know people who have lost their first love, who have traded their first love for Little League Baseball. There's nothing wrong with Little League Baseball. But there is something wrong with Little League Baseball if that robs you of you and your family's first love for God. I know people who have lost their first love for business success. There's nothing wrong with business success. There's nothing wrong with working long hours and trying hard and pressing on. But if that takes the place, if that distracts us from our first love, then it will have terrible consequences. Sometimes we lose our first love because of distraction. Sometimes we lose our first love because of drift, drift. It's a slow, gradual drift away from the Lord and toward the world. Have you ever uh, gone to the beach? I know we're a long way from uh, the white sandy beaches of Florida or something, but probably most of you have been to the beach. And, and so you go out in the ocean and you're splashing around with the kids and you're jumping the waves and just having a, a good time and you're out there for a whole hour and then you look back and the hotel has moved. <laughs> you ever experienced that? You look back and that you don't even know where you are. It's, it's, it's gone. You're looking for your stuff, your tent or your whatever you've got up there and it's gone and, and you notice the, the hotel, the beach house, it's gone. It's, it's moved 300 yards down the beach. Now what's happened? The hotel had moved. You've moved. You just moved so 
gradually. The drift was so slow uh, that you didn't notice. Every time you jumped up over a wave, you came down about three inches left of where you were to start with. And so you do that for an hour, and you're way on down the beach. You never, you never saw it happen. It was a gradual drift. See, some of us in our spiritual lives, you're not even aware of it. That's the purpose of this message, to shake you a little bit. But you're not even aware of it. But over the last year, or maybe over the last 20 years, a little bit at a time, you have just drifted away from God. There's a new normal in your life. You don't have that passion for God anymore. You can't even think about why. You don't even know why, why it has gone away. You don't even know when it went away. But you know today you've just, you've just drifted. I remember as a youth pastor, one time I got a, got a phone call from a dad of one of, my, um, one of my youth. I think she was a senior in high school. And he wanted me to come to the hospital and see her. Uh, she had had a, an automobile accident. And I, I asked him on the phone, well, what happened? And uh, he said she ran into a train. And I thought, you mean a train ran into her, right? No. Uh, she ran into a train. I thought, how in the world could you run into a train? They're big, and they, I mean, they don't move that fast. I mean, how can you run into a train? Well, she lived out in the country north of uh, Birmingham, Alabama, and right near her house, there was a, a train track, and in the country, there were no well, safety bars that came down, and so she got in her car to go to school that morning, and there was a train, so she stopped. It was a long train, uh, she, uh, you know, in that part, a lot of, uh, a lot of coal and iron and and so um, there's long trains. And so she's waiting there. She doesn't put the car in park. She just keeps her foot on the brake. And she begins to apply her makeup in the mirror. And she doesn't realize it. I don't know how long it took her to apply her makeup. She didn't realize it, but her foot had, had come off the brake a little bit. And she was just inching forward ever so slowly. Until finally, you talk about a wake up. You imagine what this would have been like. That train caught her bumper, jerked her car around, drug her like a half mile down the track before her bumper came off her car. And uh, she was just out in the woods somewhere at that point when it finally let go of her. And uh, she hit a train. Now, how did she hit the train? It was an imperceptible drift. It was just a little bit at a time. And she didn't know it until catastrophe happened. And that's, that's the story of so many Christians. What I'm trying to do is to get your attention before your bumper gets caught on the train. Because sometimes some of you, some of us, me, we, we, we drift just so imperceptibly. And, and until there's a catastrophe, until something happens, we don't even know it. We don't even recognize it. And, and until something bad happens. And, and so some of us have lost our first love and it's just been a gradual drift. Uh, number five, some people lose their first love because it's simply expired. This is a lot like drifting, but it's different. Uh, it's important from time to time to renew our love for the Lord. I got an email this past week from an online merchant. Uh, the email said, uh, Noel, it has been a long time since you have been on our site. I don't remember what, selling books or something. And uh, I, they, they wanted me to renew my commitment to them. 
uh, from time to time, we, we just need to have uh, an, an experience where we go back to the Lord and, and renew our love, our passion for him. Uh, country churches, uh, well, many Baptist churches years ago, I'm sure it's true of this church, uh, used to have annual revivals. Uh, so people have been around a while. Did you used to have annual revivals? It'd last a week. You'd bring somebody in. He'd holler a lot. And, but one of the good things that would come out of those revivals is that Christians would renew their love for the Lord. Every once in a while, we need to renew that. Uh, so I've been married 24 years, 23 years. Um, I just, um, uh, I'm not good with numbers. So, uh, so we've been married for a long time. But, but so every year we, we celebrate an anniversary. You ever thought about why you celebrate an anniversary? It's not because you're one year closer to being finished with this, or at least I hope not. It's, it's not like I only have three more years and I will pay off my mortgage. You know, I just have five more years and I'll be finished with this marriage. It's not that. It's not that you have survived another year. Uh, oh, well, I've made it 23 years. I can't believe I've made it 23 years with this woman. That's uh, not what it is. An anniversary, at least what it ought to be, is what? When you renew your love. When you say, men, write this down. Uh, when you say to your, to your wife, if I had it to do over again, I would marry you in a heartbeat. It's, it's, when, it's when you renew your love. Well, some of us, our love for the Lord, it's not, we haven't lost our salvation, of course. We're still children of God. But it has just been so long since we have renewed our love, we have lost uh, the passion of that love. And so uh, diagnostic question number one. So you're, you're at the spiritual doctor this morning, and uh, her first question is this. Are you disengaging? Have you lost your first love? Now question number two that the doctor would ask is this. Are you pretending? Are you pretending? So look down to chapter 3, the first verse. This is in the letter to the church at Sardis. Write to the angel of the church in Sardis, thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now notice, here's what Jesus says. I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. He says of these believers that they had a reputation of being alive. They had a reputation of being very mature. They had a reputation of spiritual growth. They had a reputation of being passionately in love with God. But he said the reputation doesn't match the truth. You are pretending to be something you are not. About 20 years ago, I got a call from a minister friend of mine. And it, it, it was shocking because uh, when I got on the phone, he was crying. And I thought something terrible must have happened. He said, Noel, I need to confess a sin to you. He said in a church service uh, the previous day, I, the Lord convicted me of something. And I feel like I need to call my two or three closest friends in the ministry. And I just need to confess something to you. And I was thinking you know, all kind of things. He obviously was broken up about it. And I was bracing myself. And he said, I'm I'm guilty. This is the first time I'd ever heard this before. He said, I'm guilty of the sin of pretense. And I thought, I, I, 
I don't even know what that is. I hope I'm not guilty of it too. Uh, but I could tell he was very upset and, 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 and it just didn't click in my mind what in the world he was talking about. But I have learned through the years that this is one of the most serious sins in the church. This is one of the most dangerous sins and this is one of the most disturbing sins to our Lord. That we are guilty, many of us, of the sin of pretense. That we are pretending to be more spiritual and more mature and more spiritually together than we really are. I'm afraid too often in the church we come together on a Sunday morning and for many people it's more about putting on a show. It's more about pretending to be spiritual than it is coming to worship and honor God and and, and hear what God has to say uh, to us. Uh, What we read in Revelation 3.1 is that Jesus is, is, is saying to the church at Sardis, you look so good. To those Christians, you, you, you look so mature. But I've looked into your hearts and I know that you're pretending to be something you're not. You know the most difficult passage in the New Testament to preach on? You ever wondered what that would be? The most difficult passage is Acts chapter 5. Do you know that story? The story of Ananias and Sapphira. So Ananias and Sapphira, they were having a a capital campaign, sort of like the one we just had. And Ananias and Sapphira said, we just got this piece of land and we're going to sell it and give all the proceeds to the church. Seemed like a great thing. Now, they didn't have to do that. They could have kept the proceeds for themselves. They could have given half of it. They could have, whatever they wanted to do, there was no obligation. But they they made a pronouncement. We're going to give all the proceeds to the church. So they sold the property and they gave only a portion of it. Do you know the rest of the story? God struck them dead. That's why it's a hard sermon to preach. I think I've seen that once in my ministry. I can't be certain, but I I think I have. Uh, Why did God strike them dead? Not because they didn't give more money. That's not what it's about. It's because they pretended to be more spiritual than they really were. They pretended to be these mature, generous, sacrificial Christians when something else was the real truth in their life. And God so hates the sin of pretense that God struck them dead in the church. God hates the sin of pretense. And I want to tell you, I'm afraid that many of us are guilty of the exact same thing. We are pretending to be more spiritual than we really are. And and diagnostic question in in this spiritual, physical, diagnostic question number two is, are you pretending? Are you pretending? Now let's do diagnostic question number three very quickly. Are you settling? Are you settling? Now, we're still in Revelation 3. Uh, We're going to read in a moment verse 15 and 16. You know, the majority of people are fine just blending into the crowd. They don't want to stand out. They don't want to do anything special. They just want to blend in. We judge our spiritual walk and our spiritual temperature by that of others. As long as... I'm at least as passionate about God as the person next to me, then I must be okay. As long as I'm just in the middle of the pack, I'm okay. 
That's how we judge things. But as a result of thinking about things that way, we often are spiritually anemic, we are lukewarm, and we are complacent. Now, I want you to see what Jesus says to people who are just, who are just coasting, people who are just, who are just settling spiritually. What does Jesus have to say about that? Well, verse 15, he says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. Now, what does that mean? Now, cold, spiritually cold, would mean that they weren't interested in the things of God at all. They didn't go to church. They maybe were, might have been antagonistic toward the things of God. He says, no, you're not cold. You're not against God. You, you believe in God. You, you have a Bible at your house. You attend church uh, fairly regularly. You're not cold. But he says also, verse 15, you're not hot. Now, hot in this context means passionately in love with God. So, so passionately in love that it affects our behavior and our values. So he says, you're not cold and you're not hot. And then notice um, what he says next. I wish that you were cold or hot. So Jesus is saying this, this state of being lukewarm, just sort of in the middle and coasting, you'd be better off to be cold than that. Why, why would he say that? Well, because if you were cold, if you were antagonistic against the things of God, at least then you'd be open to hear a message. At least then the Holy Spirit could convict you of sin and, and, and you could be prodded to come back to the Lord. But when you're just coasting, sometimes it's very hard to tell that you even have a spiritual need. So he says, I wish you were cold or hot. And then to put an exclamation on, on this amazing, stunning thing he says in verse 15, Look what he says in verse 16. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. Uh, that's a pretty graphic uh, expression. Uh, but the gist of it is this. God hates complacency. God hates, God hates it when, when we just settle, when we're just okay, when we think we're just riding along and we don't need to change, we don't need to stretch, we don't need to strive. When we settle, Jesus said of the, of the church at Laodicea, who thought, by the way, they were very spiritually mature, if you read the whole thing, who thought that they were just doing great, but they were settling. He said, that makes me sick when we just settle. I, um, I just read, and I don't recommend this, but... I just read the, the latest biography of Tiger Woods. Uh, it just came out a couple of weeks ago, and I don't know why it intrigued me, but I thought, well, this, this is something I'd like to, like to know, and it confirmed a lot of the things I thought about Tiger Woods. There's not much about that man that we would want in our lives. Uh, he's not a man uh, to be emulated. But one thing he did that was stunning in the book uh, is that at the height of his golfing success, and at the height, he was uh, no question the best golfer in history. Uh, so at the height of his golfing success, on three different occasions, he completely reworked his swing. Now, I don't know a whole lot about golf, but if you know much at all, you know that the most important thing for a golfer is this smooth, accurate swing. And so three times, he completely relearned how to swing. 
And each time when he did this, he was, he was the number one golfer in the world. And people criticized him. Why are, you, why are you redoing your swing? Why are you changing everything? You already have the best swing in golf. You arguably have the best swing in the history of golf. Why are you changing it? You're already winning almost every tournament that you enter. And, and you know what he said? He said, you know, it's not about being better than somebody else. It's about being the best I can be. And so he had this drive that he wouldn't settle. Well, as I said, there's not much in his life that we would want to emulate. But if a man could have that kind of drive to hit a plastic golf ball in a field, then why don't we have the same kind of drive to know, love, and serve the creator of the universe? But too many of us are just in a position where we're, we're just fine where we are. I'm going to church every week. I read my Bible three days a week. I pray uh, fairly often. And so, and that's the attitude that people have. And, and so I'm, everything just must be fine. But God says he is sick. Jesus says it makes him sick when people have this attitude and they just settle. Do you know people like that? Do you know people who, who, who think that they're witnessing for the Lord as much as they need to witness, that, they're, that their quiet times are as deep and as focused as they need to be, that, that their lifestyle, that their holiness, that their purity is just as clean as it needs to be? Um, that, that they think that they're just riding the spiritual flat plane. But now the truth is, the truth is, no, if you were up here, you would recognize that that. that that, that you weren't all that you needed to be. The truth is those people are, are way down here, but they're just riding this plane. They're just, they're just settling. We should give ourselves a self-test. Would you consider yourself hot, cold, or lukewarm when it comes to prayer? How would you describe your prayer? Is it lukewarm? Is it hot? Is it cold? Reading your Bible, serving, giving, witnessing, holy living. Uh, I think for many of us, what the doctor is asking and the difficult question it is, are you settling? So what should we do? We've had our physical this morning. Uh, hopefully it wasn't too painful. But now we, we have a diagnosis. And, and, and I think for many of us, our, our diagnosis, and, and this was my diagnosis as I worked on this message this week, our diagnosis is that we, we don't measure up spiritually to where God wants us to be. We've lost our first love. We're pretending and we're settling to an alarming degree. So what do we do? You know, a diagnosis is not helpful without a treatment plan. If you go to the doctor and they say your blood pressure is too high or your sugar is too high and they don't tell you what to do about it, well, then that's, I mean, I guess it's important information, but it's not very valuable to you until you have a treatment plan. So this whole message is an introduction. I'm going to give you the treatment plan over the next few weeks, but I, I want to show you one thing before we leave. Let's continue right here in Revelation 3. I want to show you one verse. I know I'm out of time. But verse 20, Jesus says this. This is how he wraps up the whole section. This is how he ends the physical, the spiritual physical. He says, see, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So the Bible says that Jesus stands at the door and knocks. Now, this is not a verse talking about lost people who need to be saved. That's ordinarily how we think about it. That God stands at the door and he knocks and he wants the lost person to accept the sacrifice of his son. 
That's not what this verse is talking about. Now, that is true. Jesus is knocking on the door. He's convicting the hearts of lost people. If you've never come to the place in your life where you've made a once-for-all decision to trust Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, Jesus is knocking on the door, and today is the day that you ought to respond to Jesus. You can do that into the service. We'd love to help you with that. That's the most important thing that ever happens in this place. Uh, but this is talking about something else. This is talking about Jesus knocking on the door of your heart, of my heart, of the hearts of people who go to church every week, of hearts of people who are listening uh, to the Bible taught every week. He's talking about Jesus knocking on your heart. He's on the outside, not on the inside. That's the problem, right? And he's knocking, wanting to come in. Jesus wants to have a relationship with you that's that, that is about first love, that is not about pretending, that is, that is not about settling. Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart. Now, what should you do? There are three things, very quickly. This, this is so simple. Jesus gives us this analogy because it's simple. The first thing you need to do, if somebody's knocking on the door at your house, what's the first thing you need to do? You need to open the door. Now, what does it mean to open the door when Jesus knocks on your heart? It means that you confess your sin. It means you're saying, Jesus, I know you're on the outside when you need to be on the inside. I know that there are some areas of my life and I have held you at arm's length. There are some, there are some rooms in my heart that you have not been invited to enter. In some ways, Jesus, in some areas, I have kept you on the outside. And so when you open that door, what that means is you confess, Jesus, you're on the outside of some areas of my life, and that is wrong. I don't, I don't like that. I don't want that. I don't want you knocking from the outside. I want you on the inside. And so we need to confess our sin. We need to open the door. Some of you this morning, when we, when we stand and sing, I want to ask you, open the door. And you can do that where you, where you stand or sit, or you can come and kneel here at the altar. But I want you to say to Jesus, Jesus, in some areas of my life, you're on the outside, and I recognize that, and that's sin, and I invite you come in. That brings us to the second thing. Number one, you open the door. And then what do you say to the guest? You say, would you come in? We need to ask Jesus. We need to repent of our sins. That's what this is talking about. And we need to ask Jesus to come into some rooms in our lives, in, in our hearts. There, there, there's some areas where we need to say, Jesus, I recognize you're on the outside. That's confession. And I'm asking you to come in. I'm asking you to be a part of my thought life. I'm asking you to be a part of what I watch on television. I'm asking you to be a part of, of, of my witnessing to my neighbors. I'm asking you to, 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 to set my prayer life on fire. I want to invite you into some, some sensitive areas of my life, maybe some dirty and dusty areas of my life that haven't been disturbed in a long time. You're on the outside. I confess that's a sin. I'm inviting you in. I am repenting. I want to make a change. And then the third thing, I like this. We need to eat together. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, I'm knocking on the door, and if you'll open it, I will hand you a gift, or I will give you a message. Now, Jesus says, if you'll open the door, I will come in, and we'll have dinner together. I mean, what it's talking about is Jesus doesn't just want to visit your house. He wants to stay. He wants to have fellowship. Now, we'll talk specifically about what all this means next week, but the fellowship is is to spend time in, your word, in the Word, reading, and to pray, and have a close walk with God. Just with your head bowed and eyes closed, let me challenge you this way. This isn't every service at our church, but listen, 
I'm going to ask some of you to come forward and just kneel and pray right here at the front. You say, well, that's awfully, you know, showy. Well, I, I just think it's, it, it's, it's time. When, I, when the Lord tells us that we're pretending, when he tells us we've lost our first love, it's time for us to get serious. When we realize we've been settling. So I'm going to ask you to open the door. Lord, I'm, I've kept you on the outside in some areas. To invite him in, Lord, I want to change. And to commit to keeping him there. Once you walk with him this week in Bible study and prayer. Father, don't let me, number one, don't let me, the pastor of this church, to think for one minute that this spiritual checkup is for somebody else. Because what I've heard you say to me all week is, Noel, this is for you. This is for you. This is for you. And Father, I pray that nobody in here thinks this is for the person next to them. The people you said had lost their first love were the most faithful church attenders we know about. But they had still done it. Help us to hear this. Help us to hear the knock of Jesus. Open the door. Confess our sins. Invite you in. Repent fellowship with you. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we make a commitment to the Lord.